Hey soccer fans, welcome back to Feed the Fire, a Chicago Fire and Major League Soccer podcast. I'm your host Nick, thank you for joining me once again. Tonight's episode is going to be a quick one. We're going to go over the Chicago Fire's 2024 MLS schedule and see if maybe they can finish the season with a favorable schedule like they did this year. We saw them finishing up against some cupcake teams that they should have gotten some more points off to push for the playoffs. Is it going to be that easy in 2024? We also are going to talk about this webinar I attended with none other than BJ Callahan, where he talked about leadership and management and tied in some great USMNT stories. And then we're going to finish up by looking at the transfer tracker on MLSsoccer.com and see what kind of moves are being made around the league. So stay tuned. Hey soccer fans, welcome back to the Feed the Fire podcast. I'm your host Nick. As always, we are talking all things Major League Soccer and the Chicago Fire here, but I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, the happiest of New Year's. Hopefully, you're still on your New Year's resolutions. I I know it's only been a couple days, but I'm, I'm hoping everyone is still going to the gym, eating healthier, spending more time with your family, going for that promotion, getting all those great habits, and of course, sharing the podcast, sharing the channel, Feed the Fire and Glass House Soccer. I want to thank everyone for all their support throughout 2023. We've seen great growth. We've met a lot of great other independent podcasters and fans as well. So please continue to share the show, share the link, tell people about it so we can continue to grow our community, grow the sport through conversation here and everywhere. But without further ado, and speaking of calendars, let's take a look at the Chicago Fire's 2024 calendar here. They kick things off at Philadelphia. Not an easy place to play, especially in your season opener. Now, maybe the Fire can catch the Union not fully prepared for the season, but that's unlikely. They've been a very, very solid team, and they're not playing in the Champions Cup. They're not playing in CONCACAF Champions Cup or Champions League as it used to be called. Uh, So they will be fully focused on the regular season. Yeah, we're already one game in. Let me go on a sidebar here. This is what I do, right? It's the lawyer in me. Speaking of the CONCACAF Champions Cup, the new CONCACAF Champions League, I guess they're trying to differentiate themselves from Europe as well as they've expanded uh, now the number of teams that will qualify Uh, So, as far as MLS goes, uh, MLS has gotten a number of teams in, and as we have seen in the history of this tournament, MLS teams that go to the CONCACAF Champions League, or now CUP, uh, usually don't perform very well the first half of the season, just dealing with congestion and fatigue and, and travel and all this sort of thing. So here are the teams that are affected by the CONCACAF Champions Cup. Inter Miami... And they're in by virtue of winning the League's Cup. The Columbus Crew, they're in because they won MLS Cup. Nashville SC and Philadelphia Union. Oh, wait, the Union are in. They may have some fatigue against the Chicago Fire. I forgot that they got in as the third-place team of League's Cup. And Nashville as the second-place team in League's Cup 
gets the bid. So the Union, that may bode well for the Fire to open up at the Union if they can catch them a little fatigue depending on when they're playing in CONCACAF Champions Cup or if they're looking to rotate schedules. Also, FC Cincinnati and St. Louis City are in as Supporter Shield winners and Western Conference winners. Orlando City and New England Revolution are in as the next two best clubs as per Supporter Shield standings. And also Houston Dynamo are in as the U.S. Open Cup champions. So that means Miami, Columbus, Nashville, Philly, Houston, New England, Orlando, St. Louis, and Cincinnati are going to have to contend with the Champions Cup as well as the MLS season. And the Champions Cup runs from February 6th to June 2nd. So those are some of the curveballs early on in the schedule. And we'll look, would you look at that? The Chicago Fire opened the season against three teams who are in the Champions Cup. So this is going to be very interesting to see how these teams prioritize their early MLS season versus the Continental uh, competition. And now that, the, that FIFA has expanded the Club World Cup, there's an even greater chance for an MLS club to get some exposure on the world scale. So something to keep in the back of your mind here. So again, the fire open up February 24th, the Saturday at Philadelphia. Their home opener uh, the following weekend, Saturday, March 2nd against FC Cincinnati. And then they go on to play at Columbus, home against Montreal, at New England, and at Atlanta. That is their February, March, their first six matches. Now, setting aside the championship, the, the CONCACAF Champions Cup kind of wrinkle for a minute, this is not a favorable opening for the Chicago Fire. You have the Supporter Shield winner, you have the MLS Cup champion, and then you have uh, like two, three of the neck of the top six teams in the Eastern Conference that you open up against. That is going to be a really difficult start for the Chicago Fire, uh, especially since they ran back the coaching staff and ran back the vast majority of their roster, unless there's going to be any surprises between now and February 24th. They've got to win that Montreal game. It's I, I don't want to call it a must-win game so early on in the season, but Montreal was a team Chicago was fighting with to make the playoffs, was a team they were trying to get ahead of late in the season, and if they can take three points, especially being at home, early on in the season, that would help set the tone for that kind of borderline uh, playoff contention between these middling to lower tier teams here in the Eastern Conference. So tough, tough opener, opening month for Chicago. Now looking into April, they are home against Houston at Red Bulls, home against RSL and Atlanta. So they get Atlanta in in about a month span there, March 31st and April 27th. So hopefully they can catch Atlanta uh, at, at a time when they know they can play them. Wow, that made no sense. Hopefully they can catch Atlanta at a time they know they can play them. Hopefully they can catch Atlanta when Atlanta's not playing well and the Fire are playing well and they kind of keep that momentum or at least can study that away game in Atlanta. And if Atlanta is okay to win the game in Atlanta and then maybe concede a draw, at Chicago, maybe that bodes well for the fire. But again, this is not a, an easy opening part. Again, if you have a much improved Houston team who's riding high coming off their U.S. Open Cup uh, victory, maybe they're fatigued by Champions Cup. But then, again, Atlanta, Red Bulls, another team that is always tough to play, but a team the fire need to beat if they're going to make the playoffs. Call it the Tom Barlow revenge game? Do we want to start that talk early? So the first 
uh, let's see, 10 matches for the Chicago Fire, I'm not feeling very confident. And I don't know how it's going to go. We saw last season when things really bottomed out early with that 3 nothing drubbing at Nashville, which got Ezra fired, which got everybody fired up about lots of things with the coaching staff and the organization and the players. Is that Atlanta game... I mean, I'm looking at the, that Atlanta game, and then they start off May at home against New England. I mean, if they get blown out in those couple of games, heads could roll early on in the season. Or we could be singing the praises... I highly doubt it. Singing the praises of a front office for who they've signed and how Klopas has finally got the team playing together and his coaching staff is in sync and all this stuff. It, to me, that's never going to happen. I doubt it's going to happen. I see the wheels falling off this fire team early, especially if you're going to lose, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, maybe, of your first 10 games. You really think Jordan Shakiri is going to, you know, be the guy to galvanize the team and really pick things up and play? No, he's probably going to pull a hamstring, and for those of you listening, I'm doing air quotes on the YouTube video, uh, he's probably going to pull a hamstring or have a calf injury and, you know, have to sit out for a month, maybe go back to Switzerland for treatment, right? I, I just don't see this as a very good way to start for the fire, and hopefully the team is mentally strong enough where they can see through these tough first 10 games and then really pick things up the second half of the season. So, as we continue on, looking at the month of May, uh, home against New England, at St. Louis versus Charlotte versus Columbus at DC versus Orlando. So again, it's not like you're you're getting any of the the teams that finished below the playoff line anymore. You got Charlotte who came in and beat you in Chicago to kind of put them into a better playoff positioning and then DC. So of your first 16 games, you have 1 2 Three, I can't now. I can't even remember if Charlotte made the playoffs or if they were in that play-in game. Um, you got two, maybe three of your first 16 games that are teams who didn't make the playoffs last year. Uh, yes, I know two-thirds of the teams do make the playoffs, but still, these are all teams that finished above Chicago. Again, not a good start. The month of June, we see them hosting the Galaxy, traveling away to Toronto, Orlando and Seattle. So that's going to be rough on travel. So you got to go to Toronto, then fly all the way south to Orlando City, then go all the way northwest out to Seattle in the span of three weeks. That's going to be tough travel. So again, I'm not not thrilled for the fire here. I'm not optimistic about the schedule. Uh, I'm not optimistic about a lot of things, but especially their travel schedule here. Then we roll into July and July, again, dog days of MLS summer. And, of course, things are starting to prep for, for League's Cup. you got five games, five league games in July. Uh, you are hosting Philly at San Jose, hosting New York City, then at Cincinnati and at Miami. Maybe they'll get lucky and Miami's going to rest all their players to get ready for League's Cup. Because after uh, that Saturday, July 20th game at Miami is when League's Cup starts. Maybe they get lucky and steal some points there. Um, maybe you can steal some points at San Jose. I don't know. But I'm not feeling confident about those even those home games against Philly and New York City. I'm looking for New York City to kind of reload. And after kind of a down year last year, them to improve as well. So I am not thrilled. Now we're like two-thirds of the way through the schedule, and I just don't 
see the Fire matching up with these teams, and then I don't see anything being favorable for them. August, after League's Cup, August finishes with a game at New York City uh, and then a game at home against Miami. So I know we all want to see Messi play, but from a points perspective, if Messi's getting some load management after League's Cup, maybe the Fire can can get a win against Miami again. We're, are we going to see him as hyped up? As last season, are we going to get 60,000 fans? Are we going to get a two-goal performance from Shakiri or a full-goal performance from the team? I'm not sure, but we'll see how it goes when we get through August. Now, into September, into the fall season, finally, things lighten up for the Chicago Fire. And if they have kept themselves close, if they have kept the mental strength to see through this season, through all the tough scheduling that they have to go through, then they close the season out. Here are their final seven games. Home against DC, home against Red Bull. At Nashville, at Montreal, home against uh, Toronto. That's September. They could win all five of those games, depending on the shape of these squads. And if the rumors are true and Hani Mukhtar ends up going to the Bundesliga, that would shape up for a wonderful Wonderful September for the Chicago Fire. And then their last two games in October, October 2nd at Charlotte and October 19th against Nashville at home. So they will finish the season at home against Nashville. And hey, if MLS is looking to its own little crystal ball here, that could be a nice decision day performance where you've got a Nashville team and a Chicago team fighting for a playoff spot or Nashville possibly fighting uh, for a seeding to maybe jump into a home game or get out of that playoff. So I think that the schedule is very similar to the Fires schedule last year where tough start it's a crapshoot in the middle, depending on with these Western Conference teams that they've got to play. Uh, St. Louis and the Galaxy and the Quakes. Uh, but also, you, you end with kind of a favorable schedule, at least in terms of teams who didn't make the playoffs last year. So, should the Fire make the playoffs? Yes, they should. It's I think every team should come in into the season saying we should make the playoffs, especially when two-thirds of the teams do. Do the Fire have the talent to make the playoffs? Um, if they if their starters are healthy, probably they, they should. I, I think they've got the talent to do it if they can put the coaching together with it and the, and the management of the squad throughout the season together. Um, do they want to emphasize U.S. Open Cup, assuming they play? Do they want to emphasize League's Cup? Maybe if they de-emphasize those tournaments and focus on the regular season and they get a little strength at striker and in the back line, then yeah, the, the Fire should make the playoffs. But the schedule is not one of the things that is helping them because it is very, very front-loaded with difficulty. All right, let's now move into my next segment here. Um, I I had a, attended a great webinar about a week and a half, two weeks ago. Uh, it was put on by Performance Wealth Partners. Uh, they are an, an investment company, a wealth management company. Um, actually, I, I just recently found out they do some NIL, some name image likeness uh, work with college athletes and actually have... Signed a number of Notre Dame soccer players. I don't know if Brian Dowd, the Chicago Fire's draft pick, had worked with them at all, but they, they've done a lot of NIL deals with uh, some Notre Dame alums, or at least have, you know, they're, they're managing those deals for them for some Notre Dame soccer players, which is pretty cool. Uh, so if you are looking for, for someone to help you with your financial planning, go check out 
uh, Performance Wealth Partners, and they actually brought in BJ Callahan to uh, do kind of a, a members-only, invite-only webinar on leadership and management. I'm, I'm fortunate that I know someone that works there, so he forwarded me on the link. Um, but he actually told me, uh, my, my friend that works here, he's like, yeah, I got to hang out with BJ Callahan before he went on and did the webinar. Super cool, down-to-earth guy, nicest guy, like just, just real good conversation. It wasn't small talk. It wasn't chit-chat. I'm here for a performance. He's like, he, he, we were really having some good conversations and getting to know each other. So that's the kind of guy BJ Callahan is if you couldn't already tell, if you didn't already know. Um, but I, I took like a, two pages of notes on this thing. Just a lot of it is for my own management uh, career and what I wanted to, to bring. But I also wanted to share some of what he told me and everyone with you all, especially because he brings these management and performance techniques into the US MNT locker room. And I have, let's see, six kind of themes that he touched on. And let me go over them with you. So the first thing that he touched on was they have with the USMNT, there are six kind of action statements, he called them. There are six action statements that the team put together that when they use to rely on when things kind of go awry, when training's not going well, when the results aren't there, when their play's not there, they can focus in on these six things to help guide their team back to where they want to be. And number one is intensity. Number two, together we are better. Number three, the power of purpose, meaning that the goal in, in achieving success with the team is bigger than any individual. Number four, seize the moment. Number five, get better. And number six, we respond. And he really talked about that we respond action statement because uh, when they lost two starters, this was his his example, when they lost two starters to red cards in the Gold Cup final, that is when they had to have that we respond. We're not going to get down. We're not going to have to change our style of play. We're not going to have to say, oh, no, we have our backups or our substitutes. As a matter of fact, they don't use the word substitute in the locker room. They call them solutions. E you might cringe at that a little bit. I kind of did a little bit. Oh, these aren't our subs. These aren't our bench, bench players. They aren't our reserves. There are solutions. But when you think of it from a management perspective and some of these modern corporate philosophies, it's a brilliant way to look at it because you, you want substitutes to come in and change the game for you and bring a positive effect. So if you're bringing in a sub versus you're bringing in a solution, they're identifying where they can improve on or strengthen a strong suit, especially if you're playing from the lead or able to exploit something from the other team, you bring in a solution to execute that plan. So I think it's it's great, uh, great verbiage, great vocabulary to kind of keep that mental picture of what they're doing uh, constant, that they're always having this power of we respond, seize the moment, power of purpose, all that sort of thing. So, so that I thought was really neat, that they have those six action statements uh, as part of the USMNT mantra, part of their, their teaching. The next thing he talked about was you always have to learn from losses and setbacks, and you can handle any setback if you have a plan. He also mentioned that, that how the coaching staff in US soccer defines success is not necessarily tied to winning, it's process-oriented. And they use that same thing you see in corporate training, plan, perform, reflect, 
refine, repeat, plan, perform, reflect, refine. So they're constantly undergoing a cycle of evaluation and improvement. And this kind of bothered me a little bit as a USMNT fan, because they're like, oh, we don't define success strictly on winning. Well, you need to win. And in the first part of his speech, he said, sports is results driven. Pro sports is results driven. So I'm like, okay, you might be conflicting a little bit with, with your action statements and your definition of success. But at the same time, I do understand it because you have to just go out and play your best game and get better and get better. And he has said, you know, they had a one nothing loss in World Cup qualifying to Panama, but it was about how they recovered from that. They didn't get down and think, oh my gosh, we just lost to Panama. They played a good game. And they learned from that because he said, and this was really interesting. I didn't even, this didn't even click for me when I was watching qualifying in the World Cup. He said Panama approached that game against the U.S. in a way they never expected. So maybe it's a little bit of an indictment on their, on their planning there. But what they did see then at the World Cup, England lined up and played a very similar style as to Panama. And they said, aha, we've seen this before. And they were able to adjust and get the points against England. So that's that kind of corporate evaluation. If they didn't have these kind of guiding principles, they might not have recognized that and how to improve upon it when they played England. Um, the third kind of area of focus he talked about, uh, tons of communication. You have to be clear and concise and you have to check for understanding. And that to me was the key point. And one of the things they do in training is when they do their film studies and kind of whiteboard sessions if there's a player who's posed a question, what do you do in this circumstance? And they don't know it. That player asks the player who's sitting in front, behind, and to either side of them. And as the five of them, they come up with the answer. So there's never no, you're wrong player. You're supposed to do this. It's, it's a group effort. It's a team effort. And they've got 30 seconds to figure it out. I thought that was a cool approach and, and definitely something that can work in the sports world and the corporate world. And a big thing that he harped on is they have been trying to create a safe environment for players to make mistakes. The vast majority of their players were in the 19 to 22 year old range. You know, if you think about it, it, it across other sports, these are like freshman, sophomore, junior college athletes, right? So if you are harping on a 20 year old kid who's a sophomore or junior playing basketball or football for your college and you're laying into them, you're not going to have a positive effect on it. So you need to build that kind of safe place for them to make a mistake, but work it out themselves with their team under the guidance of the coaches. So I thought that was a really interesting kind of mantra and way they've kind of set up kind of on the macro level, um, the locker room, the training sessions, things of that nature. The other thing he pointed out, which I think was great is, if someone does make a mistake in training, he doesn't want the leaders to be wrong. So let's say Christian Pulisic or Tyler Adams, who are your leaders on the squad, if they don't answer the question correctly, we'll say, the coaches don't want to call them out because then that takes away the confidence in the player, takes away the confidence in the player of the other team, and it drives a wedge between the coaching staff. So that's why they're creating that environment where the players will work it out under the tutelage of the coaches. I thought that was really, really great. Um, and in that same aspect, pregame, they talk to the whole team together and then have a complete separate conversation with 
the solutions, with the subs, um, as to what their role is going to be in the game. That's something we saw come to a head in the World Cup with the whole Gio Reyna thing, where people were ripping on Burhalter for not playing him, starting him all three games, whatever. He goes, we had the conversation with Gio, this is what his role was going to be, and everybody knew what was going on going into the game. And now it was up to the player to handle it, right? So that, that was a very interesting thing. And that's something that I've learned in my management training courses is you need to communicate what people's roles are so people don't feel left out or don't feel targeted or singled out, isolated, whatever the case is. Um, I'll try and clip through these last last few things here. Um, former athlete skills. This one was is really interesting for people who are trying to get into the sports world as a career. He said the, the, the top six skills that translate from playing sports to working in sports or just working in general number one be adaptable number two add value how if they hire you what are you going to bring more than any other candidate what value do you bring number three be coachable take ideas from others number four be willing to be uncomfortable to improve that's a big one number five you have to be open to feedback and be able to self-reflect and the last thing can you say I don't know. So if a manager or a colleague or a client or someone comes to you and says, what's the answer? Are you going to make something up? Are you going to stammer? Are you going to shy away? Or are you going to say, look, I don't know, but I know how to find that answer. If you give me a day, if you give me an hour, you know, let me circle back with you. There's another nice corporate buzzword, circle back, and, and I'll get you the answer. Are you, are you able to say that? You know, the other thing he mentioned feedback helps you grow so you need to be able to take that feedback and not be hardened by it um he ended with a great story about jay wright coach from villanova there's some connections there uh so that was really cool and from that story bj said do what you'll say you do and he used jay wright and villanova as an example because jay wright and villanova have a mantra of you know we are we are a family we are together um and then when things happen to former players and former staff members the current coaching staff and current players would go and the story was bj callahan's grandfather was a coach at villanova at one time and when he passed away jay wright and the whole coaching staff were at the funeral and and so bj callahan got to see him there and really see him live the mantra of we're a family and to do what you say you're going to do. So cool story, great insight. Um, and the best advice he ever got was never give no as an answer. Always say, you don't say yes, but always say how you can help or give something up, right? Or say, I don't know, but I'm going to find out to tie back into the earlier things. So that was some cool USMNT stories, some cool management leadership stories little insight for all you into the USMNT locker room, whether whether you wanted it or not, or whether you liked it or didn't, or whether you agree that corporate philosophies can be translated into the sports world. But that is kind of where BJ Callahan was coming from and how he presented things in the Performance Wealth uh, Partners webinar there. So go check out Performance Wealth Partners if you need help with finances support the USMNT, and also, speaking of support, that's the perfect time to transition into our sponsor break here. I want to recognize Skira Icelandic Spring Water for always supporting Glasshouse Soccer and the Feed the Fire podcast. Icelandic for clear, Skira water comes from a spring in a government-protected nature preserve in Iceland with naturally low mineral content. This isn't your average water. 
Clearly, pun intended, it's one of the best. And you can go out and get a few bottles of Skira at your local 7-Eleven. Hopefully, when you've rung in the new year, and by the time you're listening to this episode, you don't need to rehydrate. But if you do, get out to 7-Eleven, grab a couple bottles of Skira. Now, to close out the episode, let's take a look at all the transactions that have happened around the league. I'm looking at MLSsoccer.com's transfer tracker, and there's been some notable moves here. Nashville SC has acquired Tyler Boyd from the LA Galaxy. They're going to get up to $775,000 in GAM, the Galaxy R, general allocation money. They'll get two international roster spots. And then Nashville gets Tyler Boyd. Wow. So Nashville just given the Galaxy money. So maybe they're out to sign a new striker, especially since they now have gotten rid of Tyler Boyd and Billy Sharp, or not bringing them back, better to say. Um, Nashville just trading away international spots. They're going to do it with some domestics here. Uh, So that's a big move. And bringing in Tyler Boyd, does that mean maybe those... There is something to those rumors that Hani Mukhtar might be on the way out for a transfer fee. Who knows? The big international name that was just announced is LAFC have signed goalkeeper Hugo Lloris from Tottenham Hotspur in the Premier League. And at one point, Hugo Lloris was considered the best goalkeeper in the world. I don't think that's been in the last year or two, but still, that's quite a get. And he'll be under contract with LAFC through 2024. So one year guaranteed contract and then two options for 2025 and 2026 he's 37 years old and i'm trying to see if there's any numbers to this um but because it's only a one year signing i would guess it's going to be kind of a max tam a max targeted allocation deal uh but we will have to see how how those things shake out in the future uh the other move a big mls name demir krylock leaves rsl for vancouver he is signing with the Whitecaps. Um, Krylock has been an MLS staple uh, and uh, probably the biggest star for RSL outside of Beckerman and Ramondo. Uh, and it's as an RSL sympathizer, I guess it, it was sad to see him go. Um, but he's bringing his talents up to Vancouver, and we'll see if he can help them finally uh, solidify themselves as a playoff team. As it notes in the article, back-to-back Canadian championship winners, Vancouver. <laughs> so wait, wait, wait to spin it positive there. Um, Sporting Kansas City news, Gadi Kinda leaves for a club in Israel. I think uh, he came from Israel prior to joining Kansas City. I don't know if he's returning to the same club. Minnesota United are loaning Ethan Bristow to Stockport County. Stockport County can't say I I know them, but they are with the EFL League Two, so that is the English Fourth Division. Um, probably not the best move for Bristow, who's 22 years old. Maybe Minnesota's kind of given up on him, but if you're 22 years old and going to the Fourth Division in England, doesn't bode well if you want to stay up in, in the top flight. Um, let's see what other moves do we have austin fc signed goalkeeper stefan cleveland uh most recently with seattle and formerly of the chicago fire so there's some some more former fire players heading down to austin columbus crew are signing midfielder marino hinestrosa from liga mx club pachuca is this a potential darlington nagby replacement not that nagby's leaving but this 21 year old 
could fill that role over the next couple three seasons. Um, as President and GM Bezbachenko said, Marino performed at a high level for Pachuca this past year, and we were excited to help further advance this young player's development within our club. Again, he's 21 years old. He's got a contract through 2026, so three year, three seasons, and he's got an option for 2027, uh, or the club's got an option, I should say, and he's going to take up an international spot. So that could be a good move. Um, I, he's going to be a U22 initiative player, so still some roster flexibility, and you would absolutely expect that from Tim Bezbachenko. I think the guy helped write some of these roster rules, so good to see him taking full advantage of it. Um, but yeah, I think this, I, I don't remember seeing a lot of goals to Henestroza's name, which makes me think that he is more of a either defensive midfielder or pass-first midfielder in, in a similar mold to Darlington Nagby. And so maybe they think that's that's going to be a good replacement if Nagby ends up leaving the club or retiring over the next couple of years. We'll see. And then uh, if we didn't mention it last week, New York City are signing 15-year-old Zidane Yanez. Uh, to a homegrown deal. So they are, you know, getting ready for the long-term future uh, with Yanez there. And then if you didn't already hear Luis Suarez, yep, that Luis Suarez has finally joined Inter-Miami. Um, that news broke a little while back, but just in case you miss it, or if you're tuning in to the show for the first time, Luis Suarez has signed through the 2024 MLS season. So he's on a one-year deal, and that is most likely why people are shouting and screaming, hey, how can uh, Miami make all these signings and, and still be within the roster rules? Well, he's on a one-year deal, and pretty sure it was a free agent deal at that, so he'll likely, again, be a max TAM targeted allocation money signing. Um, and that's why they didn't have to pay a huge transfer fee or anything like that that would bump him up into the designated player uh, designation on the squad, so that's part of the reason they can keep signing all these guys and not have to worry or not run afoul of any uh, financial fair play or uh, financial fair play, huh, thinking overseas, or uh, run afoul of any MLS League roster rules. So those were the transfer tracker updates. Let's do a quick check for the all transactions section on the Chicago Fire. Really nothing going on here. I mean, the the transaction one still has John Durant's uh, transfer on there. So they haven't updated this for, for anything going on this season. Um, so yeah, that's where it stands with the MLS and with the Chicago Fire. And with that, soccer fans, that's where we are going to wrap up tonight's episode. Thank you for listening in. Um, I know we kind of took a little bit of a turn and talked to some management and some USMNT, but I hope you enjoyed that segment. If you want to hear more USMNT talk, if you want to hear more from around the league, please email me glasshousesoccer at gmail.com or I'm also on Twitter at glasshousesoccer. Direct messages are open. Or if you're on YouTube, go ahead, leave a comment in the video. Or if you're listening on Spotify, uh, they do have a little poll or questionnaire at the end of the episode. You can leave a little comment there. Let me know how you think I'm doing. With that, I want to thank everyone for listening. Happy New Year again, and let's go fire.